It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your Wild Grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. And if that was the craziest thing to happen, in this Democratic primary, that would be enough. Can you, I mean, we're all so in the thick of it. It's January 31st. Can you imagine on March 31st, Donald Trump being like, I'm not going to run. This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We have a lot to cover today. We have the Senator Q&A from the impeachment trial. We have Brexit, which at long last is finally happening. And we want to tackle a little bit of the history of Iowa and New Hampshire and get y'all all prepped and ready as we set off for the first in the nation caucus and primary over the next few weeks and are reporting from the ground. We wanted to give you some foundation as you listen to those episodes. But before we do any of that, we feel like there's a little emotional housekeeping here at Pantsuit Politics. Beth, you want to kick it off? 
Well, I was telling Sarah before we started that I've noticed over the past couple of weeks that the feedback that we're getting and the messages are are taking on a quality that is much sharper than we've experienced in the past four years. And, so, and that's for a lot of reasons. You know, some of it's just audience is getting bigger. People who reach out don't know us as well. Also, I notice about myself that I am more tender to it than I usually am. And that has been really informative to me because it's made me realize that I think that's why the feedback is sharper, that it's the same source, that everybody is experiencing a lot of kind of ambient stress around what's happening politically. Plus, it's late January, which is folks are very Mm -hmm. competent at pointing out lasts forever. Someone wished me like happy 74th day of January on Twitter. And I thought that's true. That is how it feels in some ways. Um, It's a hard time of the year. I think, though, that the conduct of this impeachment trial, the daily, oh, maybe this is going to change everything. Oh, no, it's not. It's definitely not. I think that just wears on everybody. And for that to be happening at the same time that we're getting really close to people actually voting in this hotly contested primary that is a contest of seriously divergent visions for the country and ideas in many respects, it's just, it's a lot. And so our tendency is, I think, to get extra exercised about things that feel somewhat within our spheres of control and to be really sensitive to how everything is hitting us. And so I just... I just think it's important to kind of acknowledge that. That's my experience of it, Sarah. What about you? Yeah, I definitely agree. As our audience gets larger, and also I think some of it is we've changed our sort of email protocol. Now people are emailing hello at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com, which I think feels a little bit more anonymous. I've noticed an uptick in the in the sort of listener threats. Well, I'm going to stop listening if you don't change this. Or I'm sorry, but I'm not listening anymore, which I don't love. Nobody likes being threatened. It doesn't feel great. I wanted to put out there, after lots of feedback about our Grammy discussion, that um, pantsuit politics is the home of grace-filled political conversation, which, in giving ourselves grace, does not mean that both of us, 100% of the time, are filled with grace when we talk about politics, just as a disclaimer. That's too long to go in our opening sequence, though, so... (laughs) We're going to stick with what it is for now. We do our very best, and sometimes we do our very best because we're human beings. (laughs) However, it is not the home of grace-filled pop culture conversations, and I don't ever aspire to that because pop culture is the best and lowest stake place to exhibit less than grace-filled opinions, Um, which is what I did about Billie Eilish and Lizzo. And so... You know, sometimes I just need to exercise some of my righteousness. And over time, Beth has convinced me politics is not a great place to shame people and do that. And I've really improved. But you will pry my self-righteous pop culture opinions from my cold dead hands, okay? I got to have some space, y'all. I got to have some space to just be like, this is wretched. And I need to share with you why I think so. It's okay. It's just Grammys. It's no big deal. I don't think even Lizzo would advise us to get too hyped up about it. Um, So I just wanted to to put that disclaimer out there for any future pop culture conversations. Uh, They will not be grace-filled, at least on my behalf. And I am never going to speak of the Grammys ever again because it's just personally (laughs) been not worth it to me. (laughs) It just hasn't (laughs) been worth it. And what I really want everybody to know 
is how important the relationship with listeners is to us. Mm-hmm. I have learned so much from listeners. And and sometimes what's really wonderful is really hard at the same time because people mm-hmm. reach out with highly personal, yeah. highly valid, and completely at odds with one another viewpoints on the same topics. Totally. And that's just part of the process of learning in public. And and I don't mean to, like, complain about our email. That's not my point. I do think when we work in public, we consent to some of that, right? It's just part. It goes mm-hmm. with the territory. And that's cool. I do think the larger phenomenon of, like, we're all just a little on edge right now, and it would be helpful to notice that is important because I feel like that, that everyone I know is having that experience. Like, I yeah. just feel like a lot of people in the universe are – Speaking in a way that's a little bit nasty and receiving it in a way that's a little bit sensitive. And I am I am guilty of both of those things right now. And so I I feel like sometimes we say, oh, politics and try to push it aside without being pretty open about the fact that it seeps into us and does impact us. Even when we say we don't care, we've written it off or we're tuning it out right now. Yeah, we've had so many listener emails that have been engaged with the impeachment trial and are articulating a sense of just heartache. I think people feel, many people, not all people, feel really heartbroken about the way this thing has gone down. They feel like they're having to face stuff that they haven't faced before and see some of the naked power dynamics of the Senate and the House of Representatives and our entire government laid bare. And that's hard. And it's it can really leave you feeling um, cynical and emotionally raw. And I, I think we have to hold space for that. We have to say, yeah, we see you. We see each other. This is difficult, even as it as it continues to play out and we we feel a sense of detachment or frustration or just overwhelm and exhaustion, that those emotions are sometimes below the surface, sometimes not far below the surface. And we wanted to give space for that. That's what we like to do here is say, hey, there's other stuff going on. We're all feeling big feelings, as they say at my um, son's preschool. And sometimes we used to need we just need to use our big voices and give each other grace for that comment that you made about writing to hello at Pansy Politics Show versus Beth or Sarah is a good parallel to how I experienced the impeachment Q&A day. Mm -hmm. I often am able to distance a little bit from the number of people who are sort of consenting to this expansive definition of executive power, this ever-expanding definition of what's acceptable conduct for the president. And then when they have to write their questions on paper and say with their voices that they're sending those questions forward and the chief justice says, this question is from so-and-so, you really have to re-engage with the humanity behind that position in a way that I found really hard. Mm -hmm. I said this on the news brief and I'll say it again here. Mad shout out to Lisa DeJardins who like, totaled up. She's from PBS, the the questions and how they broke out. And she said there were 70 that Republicans sent to the Trump team or Democrats sent to the House managers that were basically like, can you make that great point again? Which, okay, is fine. 
Um, we're not going to talk about those because that's a waste of everybody's time. And then there were 11 really challenging questions and then 11 sort of neutral questions trying to get an answer to hard things. The one that's getting the most news coverage is Romney, Murkowski, and Collins' question about what does it mean if the president had mixed motives, if some of the motives were personal and some of the motives um, were in the public interest. And I thought, what an what an interesting insight to where their brains are. <laughs> Honestly, if it was anybody else, that would be a fair question. But I feel like Donald Trump is pure at heart at one way, and that when he is doing something, there is one overarching motivation and is usually the transactional nature of his interests. But I did think it was a good question. The answer sucked, but the question was good. <laughs> I think that question's getting a lot of attention because it was the very first one, <laughs> and it's when we were all mm. still really paying attention. True. What bugs me about this mixed motive theory, which I agree in general, is an important question. I also agree with Chairman Schiff's answer that a corrupt motive is a problem, even if there is a non-corrupt motive to be had in the universe. It bugs me that this question is coming forward and it's becoming such a prominent part of how people are justifying the decision not to call future witnesses. That vote will take place after we publish this podcast, so we don't know where it will land, but it's looking like they'll land on not calling witnesses. So much of the Republican argument to this point has been, well, the House should have done its job. The House should have subpoenaed these witnesses. The House should have fought about it in court. And if they can't show up here with the evidence that they need to prove their case, then we're done. Meanwhile, they are totally willing for the Senate to, out of thin air, make up evidence of a potential pure motivation. Mm-hmm. Because nothing in the record supports any discussion of a genuine interest in rooting out corruption from the president, a genuine interest aside from sort of the political machinations of of proving that Ukraine had some election interference. There's nothing in the record that supports mixed motivation. The record right now as it stands supports corrupt motivation, not mixed motivation. And I think it's annoying. <laughs> it just frustrates me that they'll say, we're not going to do the House's work for them, but we will definitely do the president's work for him. Mm-hmm. Well, and you see... Another good question, which I believe came from Collins or maybe Murkowski, I can't remember which one, um, about, well, is there anything to show that he was concerned with this corruption before Joe Biden announced his candidacy for presidency? And they're like, oh, I don't know. I mean, we don't have anything in the record. We really can't talk about it. It's ridiculous. Like when there would be something that speaks to those president's motives, the work even then only goes so far that they're willing to do. That's the thing. If if all of this is wrong, come forward with the evidence that shows that. Their argument is not, you got it wrong. They've rapidly shifted to, even if everything's right, doesn't matter. He can do whatever he wants to. I mean, the big moment that's getting so much press attention, rightfully so, is Alan Dershowitz saying, well, a president always believes his election is in the public interest. And so since he believes it's in the public interest that he be reelected, even if his motivations were wholly and completely about his personal political success, it's still okay. You saw apparently even Republican centers like, wait, hold on, hold on. (laughs) Rewind. What'd you just say? Come again. Yeah. Yeah. 
And because that's though, outrageous. Think about the implications of that. Yeah, even though I want to say that's outrageous, no one believes that except Alan Dershowitz. And as at one point, the impeachment manager said, 61-year-old Alan Dershowitz does not agree with 80-year-old Alan Dershowitz about this. Mm-hmm. I want to marginalize it. But the fact is... That that argument is even being advanced shows how rapidly yep. we have slid in this country into a wholly different mindset about the president. Mm-hmm. And it was advanced on the Senate floor. Like, he didn't yep. say that on Fox News. He is, yep. to borrow from John Bolton and others, he is in the room where it's happening right now. And so oh, it matters a lot that he advanced that argument. And it matters that... Kevin Kramer of North Dakota is this morning saying he uses some extreme examples to make his point. I do the same thing. Sometimes we're misunderstood. It matters that we're that we're not just saying reminder that we elect not coronate here. Well, and to me, that's just I kept thinking, Okay, well, since anything the president does is okay, especially if it's to get himself reelected. Could he just ignore the constitutional amendment term limiting the president? I've also fallen down this rabbit hole while thinking about um, Oklahoma City and a bunch of other stuff that we are diving deep here on Pantsy Politics, plug for our extra credit book subscription, which has a book that the book I'm talking about that I'm reading about Oklahoma City. Anyway, I'm not a term limits person, but if we're going to continue to expand presidential power and the way that we are. And if Donald Trump is acquitted, which looks likely, so that now we're saying anything you want to do, including getting information from foreign powers, is okay to get reelected, then I wonder if we're not on a road to a single term limit. So then at least we remove the motive, the political motivation altogether. You get there, you have your time. They do most of their good stuff in the first term anyway, and then they go off the rails trying to protect themselves in the second term. I was just kind of like falling down that rabbit hole of a thought experiment that maybe we should just let's just do one term. Although the thought of never having an incumbent in a presidential race is truly exhausting. I want to think about that more, though, because I think it's a brilliant idea. If this is where we are, which this is not where we should be. But if this is Mm -hmm. where we are, sure, let's do it. Yeah, because that obviously this these political calculations, if they can be used to justify any behavior, any violation of the law, then we need to remove them. And we need to, you know, if if Congress is going to refuse to act as a co-equal branch and limiting the power of the executive branch, then we're going to have to figure out some systemic limits. It's a good argument for one term in the Senate, too, mm-hmm. especially given the way that this trial has been conducted. And I also yep. think it would force us into some of the hard conversations we need to have. And this gets to the whole Hunter Biden fiasco about what do we expect people to do after office? What are the mm-hmm. rules for their family members while they're serving? How are you to to confront the very difficult reality that after you've served, you have a certain currency with the people who are still serving and a certain currency with the public, and you are going to have to make money doing something else and stimulate your brain doing something else. And arguably, you've got an obligation to continue contributing because you've had this incredibly unique experience so what are the rules for that? Because we we obviously need rules for that. Mm-hmm. I have no dispute with the people who talk about how this, this service on the board of Burisma by Hunter Biden is problematic. No fight with that whatsoever. Mm-mm. I just think we don't have rules about that. 
And we can't really hold him to a standard about it because we don't have good rules. So let's As evidenced by the president's children populating the administration. You know, I remember in high school when I was really fascinated, like the first time I got really fascinated with presidential history thinking, oh, they get in there and they're too concerned with staying there and they make all kinds of bad decisions. I mean, it's not like this is some revolutionary insight. It is ridiculously apparent almost no matter who you're looking at. And if we just remove that, if we just say basic human psychology cannot stand up to that level of power and the desire to maintain that level of power. So we're just going to have to figure out rules to work around that. Or else we're just waiting for people that are incredibly unique and powerfully motivated by the public interest, which I think we got lucky for a while, (laughs) and now are facing someone who's more than willing to exploit this expansion and to maintain their personal power. I mean, there's reporting right now that people are looking down the road to if the Democratic nominee wins, how the Trump administration would hand over the power between presidents. Would they shred files? This is all highly speculative, but I mean, I I think it's an interesting question to ask. This is such a reversal for us because we're both usually really on board with not having term limits and that that sounds mm-hmm. like a good idea but wouldn't fix a lot of things. But I I am finding myself very drawn to your argument, Sarah. And it makes me think about something that seems like a mistake to me when I look back on some of my pre-Pantsu politics career. Go with me for a second. I realized pretty early that the easiest way to hire someone who would probably be retained and developed well is through employee referrals. Mm. And I did make a lot of really good hires that way, super talented people who did a great job and stayed for a while. And also with distance, I recognize that that is a way to certainly limit the diversity of the pool of people that you're bringing in mm-hmm. and diversity along a whole spectrum of of characteristics. Right. But it limits who gets the interview and who who gets into the position based on the existing pool of talent that you have and what those people are attracted to. And I think that there is something to the idea that if we had term limits, would we not necessarily be opening it up to a whole new pool of people? I mean, just Mm -hmm. in raw numbers, there would be more opportunities for people to serve. But I wonder if that might also break down some barriers to service. If we get in this place of, we're always having elections. We just are. It's You know, this isn't a safe seat. It's not guaranteed. This person hasn't held it forever. So there are always going to be new people in the process. I just wonder if our talent pool might look quite a bit different in a way that's really positive. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it's, again, since we opened the show holding space for everyone's emotional <laughs> exhaustion, it would be intense. I'm not trying to lie and say it would not be intense, y'all, because we would have open primaries on both sides. That's what happened in 2016, friendly reminder. And it would be, it would be a lot. I feel like if we did this, (laughs) call, call forward to the, to later in the show. I feel like if we did this, eventually the people of Iowa and New Hampshire were like, would be like, we give, we give, forget (laughs) it. We want to share. We're out. We don't want to do this anymore. Well, and I think you would want to start with the president and see how it works and then maybe try the Senate. 
Maybe the House of Representatives doesn't do this. You know what I mean? You'd have to think about what's the right balance. But here's what I appreciate about you today, Sarah. I appreciate that you're watching this whole train wreck and it's generating new ideas for you instead of just keeping you stuck in kind of a place of despondence. Oh, well, it's tempting. It's tempting. But change is inevitable. Struggle is inevitable. That's a good segue. Face it with hope, everyone. <laughs> Sarah Stewart Holland. <laughs> That's a good segue to Brexit, which is going to happen on January 31st. I want to know how you're thinking about this, Sarah, because I have a little sensitivity on behalf of Theresa May. Hmm. I think there is this feeling that, like, Boris got done what she couldn't. But what oh, Boris please. really just is doing in as I read it, and maybe my understanding is, certainly my understanding is limited, but as I read it, what Boris is doing is taking UK across the threshold from which they cannot return. Mm-hmm. But he really hasn't worked out the hard part. No. He's given himself through the end of the year to work out the hard part. And if he doesn't, then then it will just be a no-deal Brexit and things will be perhaps as scary as it sounded like they might be by this date. Well, what he did was achieve electorally, which she couldn't, which is a stronger majority, to just force this hand, which doesn't lay out the particulars of how they will deal with immigration and trade and all those things. And what I think would have been the same is if you just switched their position. If Boris had struggled through the two years of how is this going to work, nobody can agree, and then she'd rolled in and said, we're going to do it, and had an election, and people... and. Again, because the other side just cannot get their act together, Jeremy Corbyn. And she'd rolled in and had a bit electoral success and then could have done the same thing. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I think it was just a timing exhaustion. I'd be interested to hear in our, from our listeners in the UK. But to me, it feels like it was the failure of Corbyn, the length and exhaustion of the British public that got him the electoral majority so that he could just finish it up. But again, he has, you know, for for all the feelings of like it's finally done, it's not done. They have a lot of particulars to work out. And I don't know if his play is I can get this done now, both because of the electoral success and because the glare won't be as bright because we're exited and we can stop talking about another referendum or whatever. And we can just focus on working out the particulars. But those particulars, whether they're under the glare of the public spotlight or not, are not going to be easy to work out. And he knows this. I mean, he's not stupid, but... It was surprisingly emotional to just watch the final vote at the EU. Did you watch them sing Old Lang Syne? Y'all, they all joined hands in saying Old Lang Syne, and it was so touching. I hope that something really positive does come out of this for the British people, because what a slog they've been through since mm-hmm. this referendum. And I hope it accomplishes what the people who were excited about it thought it would accomplish, at least on some dimensions. I am nervous about it. The The creation of the EU really happened from a place of national security concerns. Mm-hmm. And so I feel very trepidatious about this, particularly because it's coupled with this announcement that Britain is going to allow Huawei to build part of their mm-hmm. 5G, 5G network. And if you haven't been following that story Huawei is a Chinese tech company that the United States believes is synonymous with the Chinese government, that there's really no daylight, really specifically between the Chinese Communist Party and Huawei. And Britain is part of an intelligence 
consortium, I don't know if that's the right word, but of, of countries called Five Eyes. And there is concern that intelligence sharing between the United States and Britain and Australia will be compromised because of this tech service expanding into the UK. They did this over America's strong objection. Mike Pompeo is going to visit Boris Johnson um, and has has floated the idea that perhaps he could still change their minds. I don't think that's going to happen. I think they've made this choice and believe that they're going to be able to keep everything secure. I think there's probably some overconfidence in the belief that they can keep everything secure because we know how advanced Chinese technology is. So coupling that decision with Brexit in this time frame does cause me a lot of heartburn. <laughs> and and mm-hmm. I just say to the British people who listen to this show, I really want our countries to continue to have a strong relationship. And I hope that we can continue to work together to figure that out. Up next, we're going to tackle the history of the Iowa caucus and New Hampshire primary. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and Jean also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. 
Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash pantsuit. So since this is the home of Graceville Political Conversation, I want to take a moment and say that I am very hard on baby boomers, and I acknowledge that as a weakness inside myself, okay? But every time I read about the near 1968, which is pivotal to New Hampshire primary and the Iowa caucus, as we'll get to in a moment, I think, man... I feel so sorry for anyone who lived through this year. What an incredibly traumatic year for America. And that's where we're going to kick off this history of the Iowa caucus and New Hampshire primary. And I just want to say, when we are all struggling with intergenerational conflict, we need to remember that 1968 was the worst year ever. It helps me understand why people of that generation don't get as exercised as I do about Donald mm-hmm. Trump because mm-hmm. relatively speaking, we are in a calm period. Different things are at stake in some ways and certainly for different groups of people. But when you look back at this history, you do realize why we're experiencing what's happening now through very different lenses. So in 1968, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in April. There were race riots Vietnam was going on and was hotly contested. A good portion of the country felt that their government was lying to them and they weren't wrong. Lyndon Johnson had won the election in a landslide, but then McCarthy starts running and has a really strong showing in New Hampshire. And then Robert F. Kennedy announced that he was going to join the race. Hard to imagine something like this going down because we're in a similar time period. It, they controlled everything. Democrats controlled the White House because he'd won his that previous election after filling in for Kennedy after he got assassinated um, in a landslide. So you see LBJ, he's this behemoth. They're controlling both houses. And then all of a sudden, you have McCarthy running, you have RFK running, and it's like everything's upset, okay? Then... I just cannot fathom this decision the more I think about it and the impact it would have today. They call it a political Pearl Harbor at the time. So on March 31st, LBJ, who again, let me reiterate, had won the previous election by a landslide, announces he's not going to run. And this is a really beautiful part of that speech that I want to share. He says, I have concluded that I should not permit the presidency to become involved in the partisan divisions that are developing in this political year. With America's sons in the fields far away, with America's future under challenge right here at home, with our hopes and the world's hopes for peace and the balance every day, I do not believe that I should devote an hour or a day of my time to any personal political causes or to any duties other than the awesome duties of this office, the presidency of your country. Accordingly, I shall not seek and will not accept the nomination of my party for another term your president. I mean, what can we just time out to our previous conversation about, oh, well, 
their part, their political reelection is in the interest of the country. So anything they do is fine. They can totally be motivated by that. And here's Lyndon Johnson saying, I can't I can't have one minute thinking about how I'm going to get reelected. Everything I'm handling as president is too important. Now, I don't think that was his sole motivation. I think he saw the election in New or the primary in New Hampshire, saw McCarthy have such a strong showing and thought the writing's on the wall. But still, I mean, can you fathom Donald Trump saying, I'm sorry, we're just challenged. There's too much going on. It's taking too much of my time to pay attention to this. I can't really possibly think about being reelected. And not only saying it, which gives me chills and I do have to just take a minute Mm -hmm. with not only saying it, but saying it on March 31st. Mm hmm. That's so late in the terms that we think of elections in now. And if that was the craziest thing to happen in this Democratic primary, that would be enough. Can you, I mean, we're all so in the thick of it. It's January 31st. Can you imagine on March 31st, Donald Trump being like, I'm not going to run. What? Okay, so his delegates are up for grabs. Everyone assumes that they will go to Vice President Hubert Humphrey, who's not going to, who's going to run for the nomination, but isn't really competing. He's automatically going to get the delegates from the states that caucus, because at that time, what the caucus meant is All the party leaders get together and decide who the state is going to nominate. Okay, it wasn't voting on many, many, many states. It was party leaders caucusing and assigning the delegates to who they wanted to be the presidential nominee. And everybody assumed that all those party leaders would caucus and give their delegates to Hubert Humphrey. So we're already in the midst of this incredible upheaval because LBJ is not going to run. And then on June 5th, Robert Kennedy, who's also running and getting a lot of traction, is assassinated. When he was assassinated, the delegate count stood at 561.5 for Humphrey and 393.5 for Kennedy, 258.7 for McCarthy. So his murder left his delegates uncommitted. The party was divided between Senator McCarthy, who was running an anti-war campaign and was seen as the peace candidate, Vice President Humphrey, who was seen as the best person to continue what Johnson had been doing, and Senator George McGovern, who had some appeal with the Kennedy supporters. And so the convention had massive conflict, riots even, between delegates and -and rank-and-file members. And ultimately, Humphrey got the nomination and lost to Richard Nixon. So the Democratic Party is like, well, we have a problem. (laughs) <laughs> they set up the McGovern Fraser Commission and they established these affirmative action guidelines. So, like in my local Democratic Party, if you want to be a precinct captain, they, you, there's three spots a male, a female, and a youth. So, you have to fit those guidelines. So, they set up all these basically, I mean, it's affirmative action, right? I don't know if the Republican Party has these sort of male, female, youth guidelines, but. I can personally attest that the Democratic Party is. So they require all delegate selection procedures to be in the open. So all of a sudden, these party leaders can't just go to the precinct, pick the delegate, the convention delegates, and decide who the nominee is going to be. Prior to these reforms, the Democrats in two-thirds of the states used state convention to choose delegates, not elections. These were not primary voting states. They would go to these conventions. The delegates had been chosen by party leaders, and they pick the nominee. In the post-reform era, after this commission, after all these changes, after everybody's so freaked out by 1968, 
three quarters of the states use elections to choose delegates. So the delegates are divvied up based on the results of an actual election as opposed to party conventions and caucuses. And over 80 percent of the delegates are selected in primaries as well. Can we just pause for another quick second? Because thinking about how massively this shifted, this this inter-party issue shifted the way we elect presidents and thinking about how the conversation today is wanting a total national popular vote, not an electoral college, and then rewinding even further to the creation of the electoral college when we didn't even have political parties and mm-hmm. the way that the the inventors of the electoral college thought about political parties, it just makes my brain hurt to recognize. And, and this kind of calls back to that impeachment conversation, too. These moments in history where things slide so fast and it just keeps accelerating. How much change mm-hmm. gets prompted just keeps accelerating. I mean, we talk so often about the difference that this year and the this discussion within the Democratic Party really shaped the the form of modern elections that I think it is it's good to remember like there are these moments that just matter a lot and usually they they come from things that are completely reactionary to a very unusual confluence of events. Okay, so we are dealing with these reforms. Now, New Hampshire had been first in the nation since the early 1900s and it is for a hilarious reason. So, the Granite State decided to adopt a presidential primary out of the progressive movement, which led to the constitutional right of women to vote. Good they job, adopted primaries for local and state elections starting in 1910 and then instituted a presidential primary for the 1916 election. To save money, the state legislature decided to hold the primary on town meeting day. I love that whole concept. Can we have a Mm -hmm. town meeting day again? That was the second Tuesday in March. And for over two centuries, New Hampshire's town meetings had been timed to occur in mid-March after the most brutal part of the winter and before the muddy season when it got really hard to travel. So their interest in saving money, their cold New England climate, and the desire to avoid the mud contributed to the timing of the presidential primary, which has been the first primary in each presidential cycle for a hundred years. It is obviously much earlier than March now. New Hampshire has fought tooth and nail mm-hmm. to retain that first in the nation status. There are many famous stories of New Hampshire secretaries of state pretty well getting into fights with other secretaries of state over the timing of their primary. New Hampshire loves this spot, and they are, they, you know what, Sarah, they feel about this the way you feel about your pop culture commentary. Like, you can pry it out of their hands. Mm-hmm. We are depending a lot on two great podcasts we highly recommend, Stranglehold from New Hampshire Public Radio and Caucusland from Iowa Public Radio. So if you want to hear even more about these banana stories, particularly regarding the New Hampshire Secretary of State, check those out. Okay, so you have New Hampshire been first for a while. But with all these new requirements after 1968, whether they had to happen in open and you had to have all these transparency requirements, Iowa had to sort of watch the calendar, okay, because they had precinct caucuses where they would pick delegates to the county conventions and then the state convention, and then that's how they would get their presidential nominee. 
So they're looking at this and like, well, we need a month for this and a month for this. The funniest part, the New York Times has a great little video that we'll put in the show notes. And part of it was they only had one old school mimeograph machine. And in order to like run them all off on this one machine, they had to have extra time. And so they're moving everything back. And then there was like a, a location issue. They couldn't get the location they wanted. So finally, they get to the precinct caucuses are going to actually take place before the New Hampshire primary, and they're going to be first. And what you see is nobody really cared at first until you had a couple candidates really exploit this process. And I think that is a good way to think about where we are today. We're using exploit in a really interesting way (laughs) because Mm -hmm. in some senses, exploitation sounds very negative. In others, What happened, especially with Jimmy Carter, gives people a lot of pride in thinking about these processes, that you have this relatively unknown governor. The the podcast Stranglehold plays sound from when he was on a game show before his run for president while he was the governor of Georgia, and the people on the panel had no idea who he was. They were asking him questions to try to figure out what he did for a living. Jimmy who? Yeah, they, they just didn't know. I mean, they... It, and and so what New Hampshire will tell you, the people who really believe in this first in the nation primary in New Hampshire will tell you, it is a good thing for a small state of voters who take this process very seriously to be able to personally meet all the candidates. Jimmy Carter was sleeping in people's homes and spending lots of this personal time. And for them to be able to say, America, let us introduce you to someone that you might not have given consideration to before. And so in one sense, there is really valid criticism of these states that are more homogenous than a lot of states within our union, not demographically representative of where the the population at large is, going first and getting all this attention, all this money from everybody who comes and stays in their hotels and eats in their restaurants and goes to the state fair. It, It seems really unfair and wrong. And then on the other hand, they'll say, well, there are good reasons for that because it does allow people to come out of the process who might not otherwise. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, 
It could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Well, and I'm really struck by the weirdly symbiotic but also conflicting relationship between the states, the media, and the candidates themselves. So often the way that you get these surprise candidates that come out of Iowa and New Hampshire is because nobody's paying attention to them and they can move around the state freely. There's an interesting story on caucus land about how, well, Hillary Clinton really wanted to do retail politics when she came in 2016, but, you know, because of Secret Service detail and the national media tracking her every move, she couldn't just show up somewhere and, and surprise people the way Bernie could because nobody was paying attention to him. It's like, oh, they always give us surprises because they can go and meet people face-to-face and spend the time, but they can spend the time because nobody knows who they are because the media is not following their every single move. You know, it's it's really kind of a weird interplay of those two issues. And look, for better or for worse, there's still a lot of history. We, we use Jimmy Carter as the example, and yes, he won and became president. But you see a lot of people win the Iowa caucus and the New Hampshire primary who do not become president. You can ask Ted Cruz about that or Mike Huckabee. So I think that it's really important to, you know, keep these this history in its place. They are important, but they are not dispositive. And in particular, because there's some changes coming to Iowa this year in a really interesting way that lots of candidates might be able to spin the results of the Iowa caucus. But first, let's just let's just tackle what happens when you get there. So you go to local precincts. And it's kind of like ranked choice voting. So mm-hmm. you you walk over to where your candidates' folks are gathering, 
If your candidate after that first choice doesn't have enough support to elect a delegate, which is usually about 15 percent, then those supporters move to another leading candidate. And if you're seeing reports right now about the Biden campaign reaching out Mm -hmm. to strike deals with other campaigns, that's what this is about. How can we figure out a good way to deal with the second round so that we don't have weird surprises happening This year, what is unusual is in addition to people showing up and doing this exercise of actually like talking to their friends and neighbors and trying Mm -hmm. to convince people to move place to place, they're also going to have remote caucuses held across the world as far away as the country of Georgia for Iowa expats. And that has gotten both a lot of praise and a lot of criticism. There are clear cybersecurity concerns about that. That clearly does start to push the caucus in a bit of a different direction. Also, the caucuses are really hard for people to show up to. And what you end up getting are people who are very committed to being there and have lots of information, but it's still pretty low turnout. You have to be able to be away, you know, for several hours on a Monday night and show up at a place and be there for a long time. You know, it is a bigger commitment than just stopping to vote at a local polling place. And we have trouble getting people to turn out for that. So I'm really interested to see what the results of the remote caucuses will be. They're also going to be sharing the results of those first votes. So before we start eliminating candidates because they didn't have enough people in their corner to elect a delegate, we're going to see those tallies. Who had the most votes at the beginning of the night? Then we'll see who had the most votes at the end of the night. And then we'll see the final delegate count. Because that's what we're deciding, right? We're deciding how many delegates will each candidate take from Iowa to the Democratic National Convention. It's all about the delegate count now. And that's also what we'll find out in New Hampshire. How many delegates are they going to get? And so everybody who wants to continue and has the funding to continue will find a way to say that they performed as well as they wanted to Mm -hmm. in Iowa and New Mm -hmm. Hampshire this year. I think, again, this is where a candidate like Andrew Yang has a lot of potential because of that second round of voting. I think it's where a candidate like Mike Bloomberg has a lot of potential to say these didn't even matter. Look, the real contests are coming up. I'm speaking to a broader audience. I watched his Super Bowl commercial this morning. It's really good. It's a really good ad um, about gun violence. Um, Very compelling. And so I don't know how any of this is going to play. That makes me more hopeful and optimistic than anything else happening in politics right now. I am so comforted by the notion that we have no clue, because that means it matters. It means what people are doing on the ground matters. It means people showing up to vote matters. It just makes me feel like my heart could burst. I'm so happy that we don't just know what is inevitably going to occur in the Democratic primary. This is interesting from the person on our tour who presented the, I think there's bigger role for party elites in the nominating process. (laughs) Oh, I still think there's a bigger role for party elites in the nominating process. And yet, When I see what party elites have accomplished on the Republican side, I do feel like it is a big deal for America to have one political unknown out there. Just one that Mm. just pure the next couple of months really are going to impact what happens here. And I think America needs that. I think we need some freshness somewhere. So we will be on the ground in Iowa and New Hampshire. And for our listeners there, we are going to host a meetup in Iowa. And then 
In New Hampshire, we will be stopping by our favorite, the River Run Bookstore in Portsmouth. We don't have a time finalized. Keep up with us on social media. Hopefully, we'll have that to announce on the show soon. But we just wanted to put it out there that, yes, we will be doing listener meetups in both locations. I just wanted to end with something else that makes me feel hopeful and optimistic from Seth Godin. He, I get his daily email, and it's one of those emails that I really look forward to every day because I think he has a nice way of saying important things very succinctly. So this is choosing to be a citizen. Citizens aren't profit-seeking agents who are simply constrained by rules. Citizens behave as if there isn't a rule about it. Citizens aren't craven partisans voting for party over fact. Citizens do the right thing because they can, even if the short-term cost is high. Citizens live by the rule of community. If everyone did what I'm about to do, would it lead to a useful outcome? Sometimes we call citizens heroes, which is a shame because their actions should be commonplace, not rare. The myth of success based on short-term self-interest has been disproven again and again. It seems obvious that leaving things better than you found them is a powerful step forward because you'll probably be back this way again one day soon. Every successful community, every organization, every family has citizens. It's the citizens who define the future because their commitment to the long-term matters. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. Until next time, keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Our executive producers are Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, David McWilliams, Joshua Allen, Linda Rucker, Martha Bernatsky, Melanie Cravey, and Tiffany Hassler. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.